Brother Bunner said that we were, I think yesterday afternoon, we were having uh, young speakers take over. Now we have uh, Jonathan Edwards followed by me, and after me is George Batty. So I guess we get progressively older as the days <laughs> go on. But I was given uh, the assignment to teach from Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. And uh, Brother Bunner told me on the phone that uh, that deals with the church at Thyatira, so tell us everything you know about that. We will read the passage first, and then I'm going to let you know that this, is, this presentation is just going to follow the contours of the passage. So it's going to sound a lot like an expository sermon. But at any rate, here we go. Revelation chapter 2. Beginning with verse 18. And unto the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, These things saith the Son of God, who hath eyes like unto a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. I know thy works, and charity, and service, and faith, and thy patience, and thy works, and the last to be more than the first. Notwithstanding, I have some things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed unto idols. And I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto everyone according to your works. But unto you I say, and unto the rest in Thyatira, as many as have not this doctrine, and which have not known the depths of Satan, as they speak, I will put upon you none other burden, but that which ye have already. Hold fast till I come. And he that overcometh and keepeth my words, my works, unto the end, to him will I give power over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of a potter shall they be broken to shivers, even as I received of my father. And I will give them the morning star. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. All right, this is, as I mentioned to some of the brethren during a couple of the breaks, going to be a kind of practical lesson. We're going to follow the contours of the passage, as I said, and we're going to keep in mind this central idea. 
A study of the church at Thyatira reveals that there is a need for deep scriptural knowledge, what we call biblical literacy, which, because of the work that goes into achieving such knowledge, will enhance one's watchfulness, strengthen one's commitment, firm up one's stance against false teaching and false worship, and compromised living. Now, first of all, we'll see all that in, from that uh, central idea play out over the course of this lesson. Whenever I opened a book about uh, the history of Thyatira or the situation at Thyatira, commentators and historians always get around to saying that Thyatira is an insignificant place or was seen as an insignificant place. Jesus, up to this point, has addressed the church at Ephesus, the church at Smyrna, the churches at uh, Pergamos. These are the big three, the, the, the three congregations in the three most prominent cities in Asia Minor. And then he mentions Thyatira. According to one historian, Thyatira was the least known, the least important, the least remarkable of the cities of the seven churches of Asia. It was insignificant. A lot of people saw Thyatira as a place to stop by on their way to some other place like Smyrna or Pergamos. However, when we look at the church at Thyatira, when we look at what Jesus says to the church at Thyatira, we find this. The letter to the church at Thyatira is five verses longer than the letter to the church at Ephesus. The letter to the church at Thyatira has three times as many verses as the letter to the church at Smyrna. The letter to the church at Thyatira is twice as long as the one to the church at Pergamos. The church is in an unimportant city, an unimportant place, an unremarkable location. But to this church in the most insignificant city, Christ had the most to say. To this church in the most unremarkable place, Christ talked the longest. A place is not significant because of its wealth. It's not significant because man says so. A place is significant because there are members of the body of Christ there. A place is significant because there are members of the body of Christ there who need to be edified, who need to be admonished, who need to be warned. A place is significant because there are members of the body of Christ there who need to be watchful. We could also say that the church, or the letter to the church at Thyatira is the longest because of the depth of the problem that they faced. Now Jesus, first of all, well let me back myself up. This is just a brief parallel, then we get into what Jesus says. Thyatira, the city of Thyatira is I think similar geographically to Thyatira's uh, spiritual makeup or how they are situated spiritually. The city of Thyatira had some wealth We'll see that in a moment. And they lay in an open area. They had no emperor, no king, nothing like that. They lay in an open area which left them open for compromise. Similarly, the church at Thyatira had demonstrated a wealth of growth. But they, as we will see in the passage, as we examine it further, left themselves open to, I believe, compromise, spiritual compromise, vulnerable to spiritual attack. Now, Jesus, first of all, like his, as his pattern is in addressing the churches of Asia, 
the seven churches of Asia, he identifies himself. I love this. He says, I'm the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. That means that his eyes are penetrating and illuminating. If you have penetrating and illuminating sight, it means that you can see the truth. It means that you can see beneath the surface. It means, as we have learned from other passages of scripture, for, for example, uh, Hebrews, the fourth chapter, it means that nothing is hidden from the eyes of Christ. Everything is naked and laid open to him. Jesus identifies himself as the one who has feet like fine brass. This, is test this testifies to his majesty, his power, his ability to crush his opponents, his enemies. The one speaking also identifies himself as the son of God. Now this is the part I love. Revelation chapter two and verse one, he identifies himself as the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 8, he refers to himself as the first and the last, the one who is dead and is alive again. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 12, he calls himself the one who has the sharp sword with two edges. And if there is any doubt about who was speaking, when we get down to Revelation 2.18, he says, I'm the son of God. This is the first and only time he ever calls himself the son of God in the entire book of Revelation. But if there's any doubt as to who was speaking in these first few passages, Jesus says, let me erase all doubt. I'm the son of God. I'm the one who has all authority. I'm the one who has the right to speak. I'm the one that you should listen to. I'm the one who, is, who has the authority again to admonish, to correct, to punish. I'm the one who's to be obeyed. I'm the one that Paul spoke of in Ephesians chapter one, verses 22 and 23, when he said that God has placed all things at my feet and gave me to be head over all things to the church, which is my body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. If anybody has the authority to speak, it's the son of God. And the church at Thyatira better listen. This goes for all of us. Now Jesus goes on and he says that even though you might be insignificant to man, I know what's going on. I know your works. He says, I know what you've been doing. I'm the one who walks among the candlesticks. I'm the one who walks among the churches and I'm the one with illuminating and penetrating sight. I know your works. Jesus mentioned wor mentions works twice. We'll mention that again in this passage. Actually three times. He says, I know your love. Apparently the members of the church at Thyatira had taken heed to what Christ says over in Matthew 22 verses 37 through 39 when he says the first commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. He says the second commandment is like unto it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Apparently they had exemplified that. They had lived out what Paul spoke of. I'm getting ahead of myself again. They lived out what John spoke of in John 14 and 15. Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. In 1 John 5 and 3, I want you to keep this in mind. In 1 John 5 and 3, John says, this is the love of God to keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. Even though that passage says his commandments are not grievous. It doesn't mean his commandments aren't sometimes a challenge to keep. We're going to see that here in Thyatira. Even though his commandments aren't grievous, they can be challenging. Now getting on with what I mentioned before, I love this too. Jesus says, I know your service. 
Someone once said that service is what love looks like in public. Service is an extension of love. They had carried out what Paul mentioned in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 10. Let us do good unto all men. Especially to those who are of the household of faith. And he opens that verse up by saying, as we therefore have opportunity. A lot of us don't extend love through acts of service because we don't look for the opportunity. Apparently they had found opportunities and filled them. Jesus says, I know your faith. We know that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We know also, that's Romans 10, 17 from James 1, 22. We're to be more than just hearers of the word, but doers also. We know that faith is demonstrated by works. That is works of obedience. James says, James 2, 18, you say you have faith. I have works. Show me your faith without your works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Your faith is made evident by your works of obedience. Your faith is made complete. Or made perfect, James 2.22, by works of obedience. Jesus says, I know your works. He again mentions works twice in this one verse, Revelation 2.19. In the course of the whole passage, he mentions Revelation, excuse me, he mentions works three times. Revelation 14.13 reveals, as well as Revelation 20 and 12, why works are so important. He says in Revelation 14 and verse 13, blessed are the dead that die in the Lord because their works follow them. Your works are important. He says in Revelation 20 and verse 12 that the books are open. And another book is open, which is the book of life. And the dead are judged out of the books according to their what? Works. You're going to be judged by your works. Your works follow you. Jesus knows your works. You make your faith evident by your works. Jesus says, I know your works. He says, I know your patience. That, of course, is steadfast endurance. And then he says, and I know that the last is better than the first. That means that you have demonstrated faith. You've demonstrated service. You've demonstrated good works. You've demonstrated love. And you have gotten better over time. There is always this tendency within, I think, all of us to decrease over time in my Field, my, the, the field I'm in right now, teaching high school, I read once that after teachers get to a certain point in their career, they level off and some of them begin to taper off. They get worse at the close of their teaching career. People have a tendency to fade out. But he says, not so with you, Thyatira. You've gotten better as time has gone on. This improvement as time goes on could only be done, could only be achieved through constant prayer, constant obedience, constant attending to the faith, constant study. They, they, it could only be achieved by giving constant attention to the things that, they, that all of us as Christians are to give our attention to. It only comes by way of commitment. Now here's what all of us can learn. Smith Bibbins asked me if I was still coaching basketball. I said, no, and I don't miss it. He said, at least you got some sermon illustrations out of it. I said, well, all of them. Here we go. <laughs> when I was coaching basketball, uh, there were several occasions, I'm happy to say, when we had a good cushion on the scoreboard. Good 10, 20 
I don't know, 75-point lead. No. 10, 15, 20-point lead. There were times when every shot was falling. We were running our offense masterfully. We weren't turning the ball over. Getting back on defense, making all of our stops, getting into the passing lane. Everything was falling into place. It was times like this that I would shout from the sidelines to my team, don't relax. Don't relax. Because I've been on the other side of that thing. Well, you've gotten the lead. And then you see it dissipate because your team relaxed. I used to tell my teams during timeouts and such occasions as these that we've got the lead, but that coach down there is telling his team that they're still in it. He's telling his team to still fight. He's telling his team it ain't over. Don't relax. Just because you've gotten a lead and things seem to be falling into place and you're doing this right and that right and this right, don't relax. Jesus points out a reason for us and for the church at Thyatira not to relax. We also need to pause here and highlight this. As we get older in the faith, I believe that the church of Thi at Thyatira has established an example that we should follow. As we get older in the faith, let us pray more, not less. Study more, not less. Be more committed to obedience, not less. Be a better example and don't dissipate on that regard. Be stronger, not weaker. As we get older in the faith, make your last be greater than the first. Don't relax, finish strong. Jesus tells the church at Thyatira that you have this demonstrated weakness. This is why you can't relax. You relax, you give space for the enemy to come in and do his thing. He goes on and he mentions this. He says, I have a few things against you. Verse 20, let me read that to you. Notwithstanding, I have a few things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to teach and to seduce my servants, to commit fornication, and to eat things sacrificed to idols. When he says commit fornication, he's speaking of that spiritually. That means to go after other gods. Now, he mentions this woman Jezebel in the church of Thyatira. He says, you've given her a little bit of room. It's interesting here that there are two prominent women mentioned in the New Testament who have their origins or their roots in Thyatira. The first is Lydia over in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Lydia was a seller of purple, which was a, uh, a popular fabric that was known to have come from Thyatira. Let me read to you this passage about Lydia very quickly. Uh, Acts chapter 16, verses 14, I'll read 15 as well. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, which worshiped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, and she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. And when she was baptized, and her household, she besought us, saying, If ye judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come unto my house, and abide there. 
and she constrained us. Now, Paul is in Philippi at the time, and he runs into uh, Lydia. She's the seller of purple from Thyatira. Lydia had a house. She had to uh, be at least a good uh, businesswoman to be able to afford a house. Uh, she had to be a good manager. She had to, since she was uh, a seller of uh, materials, she had to be at least a little bit persuasive. And Lydia obeyed the gospel, and she gave attendance to the, the things that the preachers of the gospel said. She invited the preachers of the gospel to stay at her house. She attended to the truth. The other woman mentioned from Thyatira is Jezebel. She's a little different from Lydia. Talk always turns to this question when we talk about Jezebel in the New Testament. The question always arises, is Jezebel a woman in the church who actually existed? Did, 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 was there a woman in the church named Jezebel? Or does the name Jezebel apply to a certain segment of the congregation at Thyatira, a group of people? Well, I think there are clues in Revelation 20, excuse me, 20, excuse me, 2, verses 20 through 23, and in the Old Testament that reveal that Jezebel is a single woman who was influential, almost like Lydia, who was persuasive, like Lydia. She is known to or said to have seduced Christians, and she was able to seduce or influence or draw away several followers from within the church of Thyatira. Now, I say there are clues here in Revelation 2, 20 through 23 that let us know that this is one influential woman. Her name probably was not Jezebel. However, just a flashback here in the Old Testament, an Old Testament connection to Jezebel, Ethbael. King of Tyre and Sidon, he was an influential man, had a daughter named Jezebel. He was king for about 32 years. Jezebel grows up and she marries Ahab, the king of Israel, the king of God's people. Then Jezebel, after she marries Ahab, proceeds to promote all manner of false doctrine, idolatrous worship. She introduces it into her newly adopted country and into her marriage. Now listen, if you will, to 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 29 through 33. This encapsulates kind of the nature of their marriage, uh, the, the, some of the character of Jezebel and the weakness of Ahab. And in the 30 and eighth year, eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And it came to pass at, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he took to wife Jezebel, daughter of Ethbael, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up, this is Ahab, reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. 
because of his marriage <laughs> to Jezebel, Ahab, the leader of God's people, becomes spiritually weak, spiritually compromised. He gives Jezebel room to operate, space to do her work. Jezebel being an opportunist, as you'll see again on the next slide, given space to, to was given space to remove the living God from his rightful place and to replace him with the God that she grew up with, being a Phoenician, Baal. And we see after their marriage, and this is just a taste of Jezebel's resume, how opportunistic Jezebel was, how wicked Jezebel could be, and how vigorously she stood in opposition to the living God. Over in 1 Kings 21, 1 through 25, we find that there's a man named Naboth who has a vineyard nearby uh, where Ahab lives. Ahab wants this vineyard. He desires this land and he tells Naboth, I'll give you money for it. Naboth says, I don't want to give away the land. It, was, it belonged to my forefathers. I, I don't want to give it up. And when you read this story, you'll find that Ahab actually begins to pout. He goes back and, and he won't eat. I shake my head every time I read this. This is a grown man who folds his arms and won't eat because he can't have what he wants. And Jezebel says, do you know who you are? You're the king of Israel. Get up, get something to eat. She says, let me handle this. She starts to write letters in Ahab's name and she proclaims a fast and then she brings Naboth up on some trumped up charges and she has two scoundrels, as the King James puts it, to accuse him of blasphemy. And she has Naboth taken out and stoned to death. And after she hears that Naboth has been put to death, she tells her husband Ahab, now, go get that land that he denied you. That's Jezebel, 1 Kings 21. Jezebel, 1 Kings 18, supports 450 prophets of Baal. Jezebel 18 and 4 massacres the prophets of God. Jezebel seeks to kill one of God's most famous prophets, Elijah, 1 Kings 19. This is Jezebel, given room to operate. Now in the Old Testament, as in the new, we see that Jezebel was one woman allowed to operate and she proceeded to promote false doctrine and false worship. The name Jezebel in the New Testament is applied to a woman in Thyatira because apparently she had the same mental and operational traits as the Jezebel of the Old Testament. My daughter, my youngest daughter, she's not Jezebel, my youngest daughter, Looks a lot like me. Wears glasses like me. Taught high school English like me. Coached basketball like me. One time I was walking into a restaurant and the teenager behind the register was looking at me and I got in the restaurant. She said, you're Holly's dad, aren't you? I said, yeah, how'd you know? She said, you, you all walk alike. <laughs> one of my friends was over at the house one time and he saw my daughter and he said, that is Todd. 
with a ponytail. My daughter has the same mannerisms as me. We have the same sense of humor. We, she, we obeyed the gospel at the same age. We're a lot alike, so much alike, that a friend of mine called her by my name. Jesus is saying that you have a woman who looks like Jezebel, walks like Jezebel, has the mannerisms of Jezebel, has the mindset of Jezebel. She's Jezebel on this side of the cross. She has the same influential, opportunistic type of behavior that the woman of old had, and so Jesus calls her Jezebel. Was she a prophetess? Now here I said earlier that there are clues in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 20 through 23, that let us know that this is a single woman who existed in the congregation of Thyatira. Jesus calls her, let me pause here, Question, is she a prophetess? Jesus doesn't say she's a prophetess. Jesus says she calls herself a prophetess. Now, Jesus is speaking about a real woman who calls herself a prophetess. That means that there was a real woman in the church at Thyatira who called herself a prophetess that Jesus is referring to as Jezebel. I say that to show that this woman was there. A lot of people think it's a group. But we'll show another passage that shows there's another name for the group. This woman was there. Jesus says she calls herself a prophetess. Now notice, false prophets, you can argue against me on this during the question and answer, false prophets always, without exception, I'm saying they always, without exception, claim to be something they're not. She calls herself a prophetess. A lot of false prophets today call themselves certain things, apostles. They always claim to be something they're not. She's no exception. Now, the roots of the problem is this, are this, are these. The church at Thyatira was living out what Paul had warned about in Ephesus. If you look at a map, Thyatira isn't too far from Ephesus. Paul says in Acts chapter 20, verses 26 through 31, something that has become a reality for the church of Thyatira. Acts chapter 20, beginning with verse 26, reads, Wherefore I take to you record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Here, take heed. Therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I ceased not to warn you, everyone, excuse me, night and day with tears. There are a few things I need to point out here. Paul tells them to watch. Paul says that there are going to be people of your own selves, we've seen this in our age, who rise up from within you and teach false doctrine. Paul says that these people, listen, will draw away disciples after them. In order to draw away disciples after you, you've got to teach. A disciple is a learner. A disciple is a pupil. In order to draw away disciples after them, They've got to teach.
what is taught don't miss this what is taught doesn't have to be true in order for it to be learned and practiced it doesn't have to be true there's a book that I used to teach by George Orwell 1984 and in that book they're trying to, of course, control the citizens in that book. Big Brother is Watching is a famous uh, line from that book. And in that book, there are a couple of episodes where they're training the minds of these people they're trying to control. And they say, what's two plus two? Four. No, no, no. Two plus two is five. Over the course of the novel, by the time you get to the end, they believe it. What's two plus two? Five. Two plus two is five. What is taught doesn't have to be true in order for it to be believed and followed, even if it's as plain as two plus two. There was a time in this world, in this uh, country, when I saw some old uh, 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 black and white reels that said this. There was a time in this country that when it was believed that having a cigarette after a meal was healthy. What is taught doesn't have to be true in order for it to be learned and practiced. Some people believe that Santa Claus exists. What's taught doesn't have to be true in order for it to be believed and practiced. The other thing is this. What does Jesus say that this woman who came out from among them did in Revelation 2 and verse 20? Let me read it again. Notwithstanding, I have some things against thee, because thou sufferest that woman Jezebel, which calleth herself a prophetess, to do what? To teach and to seduce my servants. Jezebel came teaching. What she taught didn't have to be true in order for it to be practiced. What she taught didn't have to be true in order for it to be believed. What she taught just had to be convenient. You'll see what I mean. Now, in order for us to, to, to keep false doctrine from taking root and from sprouting up, mm, we have to fulfill first our responsibility. We'll see here that we have no excuse because the scriptures, these are just a few, let us know that or, or, or are open enough, are, are readily available enough to, to remove any excuse that we might come up with. What do we do when we spot false doctrine? Romans chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. Mark them, mark them which cause divisions and offenses contrary to the doctrine which you have learned, learned, and avoid them. For they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own bellies, and with good words and fair speeches deceive the hearts of the simple. Don't you see that today? Good words and fair speeches. A lot of preachers on TV talk loud and say nothing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul says this, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly and not after the tradition which you have received of us. Withdraw yourself from every brother that walks disorderly, lives disorderly, that compromises and not according to the tradition which you have received of us. I love that Paul says that. Because if you look just a, a chapter prior to this, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 
stand fast and hold to the traditions which you have done, which you have what? Learned either by word or our epistle. You either learned it because you heard us teach it directly or you learned it by reading the epistles. False teaching has to be eradicated or it will, listen, it will cost people their spiritual lives. It will become, I know you've seen this already, it will become generational. It won't die, it will multiply. Because it's so convenient. So easy. Back in the time of the church of Thyatira, they had no excuse. We have no excuse. They had the scriptures. Romans was written during the mid-50s. They had access to that. Second Thessalonians was written in 53 AD. First Corinthians was written in the late 50s. Ephesians was written in the early 60s AD. Philippians was written in the early to mid 60s AD. Colossians was written in the early 60s AD. And the book of Revelation doesn't come along until 95, 96 AD. This is when these people are being addressed. Now you might say that some of these places are 100 to 300 miles away from Thyatira, but you could travel that far in 30 years. The scriptures could reach them in 30 years. No excuse. Plus, we find in 1 Thessalonians 5.27, Colossians 4.16, these are just two places, there's more, that the epistles were being circulated. No excuse. It was even asserted that by one commentator who cited Acts chapter 14, verse 23, that the church at Thyatira probably had elders. Elders were ordained in all the churches. Acts 14, 23. No excuse. Now, Revelation chapter 14, excuse me, chapter 21, 2, verse 21. Jesus says, and I gave her space to repent of her fornication, and she repented not. Even though false teaching had taken root, even though false teaching had borne some fruit, even though Jezebel had drawn away some followers, Jesus says, here's grace, here's mercy. There's space to repent. This, of course, uh, calls uh, to mind something that Brother Edwards just mentioned, 2 uh, Peter chapter 3 and verse 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We move on in that same chapter, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15. Peter says, and count that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. The long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. Jesus is giving us space to repent. When we've gone wrong, Jesus gives the people in the church of Thyatira space to repent, every opportunity to repent, even though they have shown they have been rebellious towards him. You might look as a reference. I won't I won't take up time right now at Luke chapter 13, verses six through nine. The context of that is repentance. But moving on, they did not repent. Now, here is here is where I'm going to land with regards to what I said before. False doctrine, one, can be so convenient. Two, even though John says in 1 John 5 and 3, his commandments are not grievous, it doesn't mean they won't be challenging sometimes. Why would the people at Thyatira have resisted this opportunity to repent? It is possible that the members of the church at Thyatira placed making a living 
above living their making. Ephesians 2 and 10 says that we are to live our making. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus under good works, that God had before ordained that we should walk in them. We're to live our making. We're to do the works that God has ordained for us to do, or charged us to do. Now, living your making means that you have to resist or avoid certain things in this world. Archaeologists have, and a lot of people haven't heard of this, trade guilds are like the, uh, a lot like the unions of today. Archaeologists, I find this interesting, have to, that have studied this area have found in inscriptions that there were a lot of trade guilds in Thyatira. Trade guilds were associations that were established for both the profit and pleasure of the people who were employed and who were members of these guilds. There were trade guilds for leather workers, trade guilds for makers of tools, trade guilds for people who sold fabric, trade guilds for potters, there were even trade guilds for people who sold slaves. And these guilds are said to be in Thyatira, here's where the trouble comes, partially, that they were more extensive and better organized than any other trade guilds in any other city in the ancient world. That means they had power. If you were not part of a trade guild, it meant you probably didn't have a job. If you were not part of a trade guild, that meant that your family might go hungry. If you were not part of a trade guild, it meant no matter how masterful you were at your task, you might not eat. Here's the second, fold of that, or second part of that problem. A lot of the trade guilds, matter of fact, all of the trade guilds, according to the, uh, the historians I read behind, had feasts, seasonal festivities. Each trade guild had a patron deity, a patron god. And each trade guild opened up their feast with a, a, a formal sacrifice to their patron god. And then they would close their festival with a, another formal sacrifice to their patron god. And the meat that they offered to these idols would be offered to the members of the trade guild to eat at these feasts. Now, right away, you should see that a Christian should not be part of that. Also, you should see that this, is the, this has to be where Jezebel found a foothold. It's got to be because this is the exact behavior that Jesus says to avoid in Revelation 2 and 20. You have allowed Jezebel to have opportunity. You have suffered her, he says, in the King James, to be a partaker of these let me, well, to be a partaker of these events. And he mentions offering meat to idols, offering sacrifice to idols, or consuming meat that has been offered to idols. Now, you have sacrificed, you have allowed Jezebel to, to operate because she has probably come along with some sort of doctrine that's easier for you to digest. You want to keep your job? You want to stay religious? Make this compromise. Now it will behoove one who is a Christian to avoid being a member of a trade guild. You can't, you can't live that way as a Christian. It totally opposes the word of God. But what are you to do? Your livelihood depends on you be being a member of the trade guild. 
But the trade guild is completely, thoroughly sinful. So as my students would say, what's a brother going to do? <laughs> well, if your occupation stands in opposition to God, trust God. That might sound to you like some shallow surface response. But I'm telling you from experience, I began to study the word with my uncle when I was a freshman in high school. And a member of my family roadblocked those studies. And I thought, I was telling Brother Bobby and his wife, when I leave home, I'm gonna do what I wanna do. Well, I joined the army. I served in the military. The first contract I signed was for six years. By the time I was 20, I was married had two children and one on the way. And I flew back home. Matter of fact, it was this time of year, back in the 90s. We picked up, my uncle and I, where, I, where we left off with those Bible studies. And after about a week, I obeyed the gospel. I got back to California where I was stationed. We began to worship. And I remember going down to Fremont, California to hear Benny Cryer speak. And I came out in the foyer area, and on their rack, they had a, a pamphlet written by Paul Nichols called The Christian and Carnal Warfare. I began to study that. And everything made sense to me. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Our, our war is spiritual, not carnal. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of straw. I read that. I read that the weapons that we use are the sword of the spirit, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, that we're to have our loins girt about with truth. I, I read that. His commandments are not grievous, but they can be challenging. I mean, I had a wife and two kids and one on the way, and the army gave me free medical free dental, free vision. All my kids were born for free. GI Bill for college. They gave me a stipend for my apartment. What do you do when your occupation stands in opposition to the word of God? You trust God. I got my package together. I went through all of the interviews and I got out as a conscientious objector. Wife. Two kids, one on the way. Things were hard for about a year. And then they got progressively better. They got progressively better. And I saw with my own eyes, you trust God. Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 10, after you've suffered a while, he will establish you, strengthen you, settle you. Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, we all know that one. 
all things work together for good to him that love God, for them that are called according to his purpose. Psalms chapter 37, verse 25. The psalmist David says, I've been young and now I'm old and I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor his seed begging bread. What do you do when your occupation stands in opposition to God? You trust God. There's been a question stirring around in my mind. Why was Lydia from Thyatira 300 miles away <laughs> selling fabric? Maybe she knew. I got to get out of here. Trust God. Now, Revelation chapter 2, verses 22 through 23, we saw on that previous slide that if you trust God, things get progressively better. If you stay where you are in sin, he's telling the people at Thyatira, things are going to get progressively worse. He says in Revelation 2, verses 22 and 23, Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am he which searcheth the reins and hearts. And I will give unto everyone according, every one of you according to your works. Oh Lord. In Revelation 2 verses 22 and 23, when Jesus says, I'll cast her into a bed, the English Standard Version, the New King James Version, the Revised Standard Version, the New American Standard Bible say that that's a sick bed. Her bed of pleasure is going to be turned into a bed of pain. And all of those who follow her will be punished with her. Jesus says, I will kill your, your children with pestilence. That's from other translations, which literally means, the King James got it right, death. I will kill her children. This again is where I mentioned that Jezebel was one woman and her followers are called something else. Here her followers are called her children and it's nothing uh, uh, new or out of the ordinary for, for the, the disciples of an individual to be called their children. Paul, in excuse me, 1 Corinthians 4.14, 4, refers to those he converted and still kept in contact with as his children, his beloved, is translated his children. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 19, Paul again re refers to those who, who were under his tutelage as his children. And he says, you will be punished and all the churches will know that I am he. All the churches will know that I'm the one. All the churches will know that I am who I said I was at the opening of this letter, the son of God. And you will be an object lesson. You'll be an object lesson. I remember cutting one of my best players from the basketball team after I gave him space to repent. This guy was worth 20 points a game. And the team realized, the next morning, they were like, you cut him? They realized if I was going to cut him, I'll cut anybody. Jesus says, you've made a lot of progress, Thyatira, but you've got a segment in there that's messing up, and I will cut them. And you'll know that I'm the coach, that I'm, I'm the son of God. I think this is the last one. <laughs> Those who have followed Jezebel will share the same destiny as Jezebel and those who have not followed Jezebel, who have not known, and he uses this term sarcastically because reading behind this, I discovered this was a term that they used, who have not known the deep things of Satan. That's a sarcastic statement. He says to you, I've got no other commandment but this, hold fast. When Jesus says, I'll come to you, that's the coming of Christ, not referring to the second coming of Christ, but it's the arrival of Christ in the sense that he's going to wage his judgment on Jezebel and her followers. He's going to fulfill all that he promised with regards to his judgment. Ultimately, the one who overcomes 
This is at the close of what Jesus says. Revelation, excuse me, at the close of what Jesus says in this passage to Thyatira. Will receive, he says, the morning star. Which I read to mean fellowship with Jesus Christ himself. Because later on in Revelation 22, 16, he calls himself the morning star. I think that's it. Unless you want another basketball story. <laughs> 